Welcome to the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. I'm Jenny Rawlings, a longtime yoga teacher and educator, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Travis Pollan, an exercise science professor and a longtime yogi himself. Together, we take a science-based look at many of the common questions, myths, and controversies that arise in the realms of yoga, movement, and fitness. Join us on this crash course where the worlds of yoga and movement science collide. Welcome to episode 37 of the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. Today, we have a great topic of focus for you, which is the excellent topic of magic muscles. (laughs) Magic muscles. And this may be kind of a new term to you, like what's a magic muscle? And we're, of course, going to like dive into what a magic muscle is and define it as we get talking today, but just to just to throw out like a, a brief, maybe superficial definition to give you an idea of what this is all about, there tend to be kind of like a select few muscles in the human body that tend to be kind of pulled out and given a little extra attention, extra focus, maybe treated as though as though they're more special or that they matter more than other muscles in the human body. So uh, those, you can kind of casually think of them as, quote, magic muscles. And it's just interesting because the human body contains well over 600 muscles. That's a lot of individual muscles in the body. But we tend to hear about, I'm going to say as far as magic muscles go, maybe the list is somewhere around 10-ish, kind of depends on like, you know, exactly which ones, but we tend to hear a lot about 10 or so muscles, like in terms of in the yoga movement world, in the fitness world, in the rehab world, and also just kind of on social media when you're scrolling around out there or on Google, they're just like, you know, this, this handful of muscles that get pulled out and treated as extra important or extra magical. And so that is what we wanted to focus on today. And, you know, a couple questions like, is it helpful to have a focus on magic muscles? And in some contexts, it may be like there may be good reason to treat certain muscles as mattering more than others. But also in other contexts, could it be unhelpful to have this kind of overly specific anatomical focus on the muscles? So that's um, that's basically what, what we're looking at today. Oh, and just to throw out a few examples um, that I have a feeling many of our listeners will be able to relate to as far as kind of what Travis and I are calling magic muscles today. A few examples might be uh, transverse abdominis, which is like this deep abdominal muscle that tends to get a lot of attention. Uh, the psoas muscle, uh, the a muscle in your low back called the quadratus lumborum, but also also just called uh, the QL, the QL muscle. And if you're not familiar with any of those, we will be defining them today as we discuss. So just just so you know, but if um, if I'm kind of mentioning those muscles, they may kind of ring a bell for you, like you might be thinking like, oh, I've, I've definitely heard about those muscles or I see talk about those muscles. They tend to be kind of buzz termy muscles. So uh, that's what we mean by magic muscles. And our plan for today is we want to kind of start off by just talking about the concept of magic muscles in general and some foundational ideas that surround them. 
and the idea, um, like maybe the pluses and minuses of of a movement cueing or a movement practicing approach that's like from a muscle-based perspective. So we kind of want to talk about some general ideas surrounding this topic, and then we plan to move into looking a little more deeply into some specific magic muscles to give them a little more attention and just for some more learning opportunity. Because when we look at examples, that can help us see um, see how how they show up for us out there in the world of movement. So that's our plan. And the hope is that we get to kind of geek out on anatomy in this episode. We know that a lot of our community consists of uh, yoga and movement geekily minded people and and Travis and I are also (laughs) geekily minded. So we hope to, yeah, just like geek out on some anatomy in this conversation and also just to kind of hone all of our critical thinking skills a bit more as we always attempt to do throughout like all of our Travis's and my work together in general and all the episodes of the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. Before we dive into our content, just a few reminders about some ways that you can support us and our work with this podcast. Uh, Number one is this is kind of new, but you can now support us and the work and the effort and the time that we put into this podcast and the educational resource that it serves. You can support us by becoming a, a monthly supporter for just $3 a month. So that's kind of cool. If, you fi- if you've been finding our offering here to be of value, you could offer some value back to help support us and to help, um, you know, the good word of like an evidence-based approach to yoga and movement to help that spread in our community. So the link to become a supporter is in the show notes, and you could find that in the show notes uh, on all of our episodes, Become a Supporter of the Yoga Meets Movement Science Podcast. In addition, you can also support us by subscribing to this podcast, leaving us a rating or a review. You can also sign up for my email newsletter to just stay on top of, of everything going on around here with Travis and me and all this content. Uh, and you could do that at jennyrollings.com slash newsletter. And lastly, you can support us by considering joining Travis's and my Strength for Yoga remote group training, which is a very cool strength program we created to um, help specifically yoga practitioners bring strength into their movement practice, bring strength training into their movement practice. So you can use code PODCAST30 for 30% off your first month in our remote group training program. And the link is in the show notes and you could find out more um, at jennyrollings.com. So now that all of that is said, we are ready to turn our attention to the great topic of magic muscles. And Travis, I know in this intro, I kind of threw out like sort of a definition for magic muscles, but like in your words or in your sense of the term, like what's, what's a magic muscle? Ooh, it's like when the magician has the hat and he pulls the (laughs) rabbit out of it. Right. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mm-hmm. I think that it's just a, a muscle that is extra special, like more special than yeah. all the others, and deserves extra special attention. And if we give it the extra special attention, then it'll cure us of all that ails us. Right. So whether right. it's a pain thing or a performance thing or uh like you're trying to achieve pose or yeah. just trying to fine tune something. If you can just get your 
insert magic muscle to fire properly or sequence better because it's off or any of those ideas, then magically your whatever ails you will be fixed. Hey, quick question for you. Are you someone who wants to be fit, healthy, and happy? And what if I told you you could get your dream body by simply just listening to a podcast? I'm Josh. And I'm KG. And we are the hosts of the Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast. Listen, we get it. Fitness isn't easy. Carbs, no carbs. Just stop, okay? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's why we made this podcast. We get straight to the facts so you can become your best you. So the way to check us out is click the link in the show notes or search Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll see you soon. I really love that definition. Yeah, that I really resonate with that as well. It's kind of in my impression, it's kind of like these specific muscles get elevated and I guess kind of thrown out at you as like, you need to pay attention to this muscle because if mm-hmm. you're not, you're being held back. Like you said, something that ails you, whether it's a painful condition or um, a performance issue, maybe you don't run as fast. Maybe you don't lift as much. Um, maybe you don't get into that yoga, mm-hmm. pose. Some, something like that, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah, so it's just kind of, um, yeah, it's like you, the general person, you need to pay attention to this muscle because of this, and it's going to fix this for you, right? Right. And you, the general person, like we've talked about this before, like with the breathing episode, which was episode number... 35, I'm pretty sure. 35. Oh, wait, you mean mean breathing with Joe Miller or nasal breathing? uh, Whichever one, I think it was the nasal breathing where it was like, you, the general person, you're breathing wrong. You, the general, like everybody's TA is not firing. Everybody's glutes oh, are not working. TA is transverse abdominis, just so people know, in case they didn't know. TA, yeah. Right? So it, That's it, right. It, it's it's indiscriminately applied, which I think Thank we'll you. probably yes. get into. It's like, well, not everybody, not everybody has a problem with the same muscle, right? Or even everybody Absolutely. with a certain painful condition necessarily has a problem with the same muscle. So it's. It's like try. It's like an easy solution to a complex problem, and right. it's it's just uniformly everybody needs this. Oh my gosh! Thanks for drawing that parallel with like what we talked about in the nasal breathing episode. And yeah, just to affirm that was episode thirty-five for anyone who yeah. wants to go right. dive in. So everybody's breathing wrong, and everybody's transverse abdominis is not working. Exactly. And therefore we all need to learn from like our yoga teacher or from our physical therapist. Like we need to learn this transverse abdominis activation drill Mm -hmm. or exercise, right? Like this is just an example and we're going to talk about, we're planning to talk about that. Yeah. We'll insert other muscle and it's all the same. Right. Contraction, timing, sequencing. All of that. And it does seem like um, you alluded to this a little bit ago, but it's kind of just like an oversimplification of, you know, maybe how the body works, how pain works, how performance, you know, interplays with all of that. It's like um, everybody wants a quick fix, right? So a pill that you can take that'll fix whatever the problem is. And this is like a magic pill. This is like the magic muscle. This one (laughs) thing work yeah. on this and then your problem will be solved. 100%. Yeah, that's I really feel like that's um how it's treated and it's just so interesting to me because when you study anatomy you learn like I said in the intro but like there are 
I, I read uh, when I was doing some research specifically 639 muscles in the human body. But I think sometimes different sources say a different number. So generally just mm -hmm. over 600. But that's a lot of muscles, you know, that like we could be talking about and thinking about. So it's just why is it that just this like small handful tend to be like kind of pulled out and held up like in, you know, buzz terms, trendy topics, just they catch and on. And it's in interesting, like why these eight or seven muscles that we're going to talk about. And <laughs> yeah, not... we're planning to try to talk about seven today, but yeah. yeah. And not the other 632, yeah. right? <laughs> like what? And it, yeah. I think maybe we will talk about what is, what's particularly attractive about these seven muscles and, and kind of ties yeah. them together or some yeah. unifying themes about them that make them appear magical where the other 632, like nobody cares about them. <laughs> yeah. And actually I do have some ideas about like what, what they have in common, like why these specific muscles tend to become. And uh, yeah, so we might talk about that kind of as we wrap up at the end after we kind of go through all these. So you li listen till the end to find exactly. out. Exactly. You've got to find out like what we think about at least why these, yeah, why these muscles, how they become magical. Um, and then we also, of course, wanted to point out, as with everything we talk about on the podcast, nothing's black or white. It's always nuanced. So Travis and I, I think I could speak for Travis in suggesting that we're certainly not here to say that we should never talk about muscles or think about movement um, from a muscle-based, you know, perspective. And mm -hmm. I think there are a lot of contexts in which, you know, maybe it's not magic muscles, but maybe just like thinking about muscles and placing priority on them and using them in your language. I think there are some contexts in which that matters and is actually helpful, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, like uh, like strength training, I feel like is one example, um, or even maybe more specifically from uh, than strength training, like uh, bodybuilding, which is a type of strength training that's focused on hypertrophy, which is a fancy word for like muscle growth. And right. uh, in that community there, I guess you could say community, but in that practice of bodybuilding, mm -hmm. yeah. they're certainly like, they're really trying to train certain muscles, right? Like, yeah, it's a look that you're after. It's an aesthetic. Right. So right. you're constantly striving, not just for bigger muscles, that's certainly part of it, but for more symmetry and balance. And mm. the, mm -hmm. you know, you're, whether that's you looking at yourself in the mirror or pictures of you or videos of you or your, your bodybuilding coach. And, and if they identify, oh, this side or this muscle, is is underdeveloped relative to the other muscles then they right. specifically try to work on bringing that muscle up relative to what else you got going on so clear <laughs> right. clearly a muscular approach although although in a bodybuilding context they're usually addressing more um prime movers like bigger muscles mm. mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. it's not than, just not all 600 muscles right well, no, face. but, but like you wouldn't hear the a bodybuilder talking about like, well, I, I really need to grow my TA. I really need to grow my QL. Like right? they're talking about pecs and biceps and lats, right. which aren't, Quads, there's maybe. a, if you drew a Venn diagram of the magic muscles and the muscles that bodybuilders are targeting, there's no overlap. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a really funny point. Yeah. They're not trying to grow their psoas. Right. Or mo yeah, most likely not. Yeah. 
there uh, there's one exception there's one exception uh what is it i don't should we spoil it now yeah we could the the muscle that's on both lists would be the glutes oh right 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 bodybuilders do try to to focus on their glutes yeah so just this example like bodybuilders pointing them out that uh it's not necessarily the same as the as the quote magic muscles you know but there's some overlap just in this idea of in general thinking about moving and taking an approach that's very muscular based basically so it's got overlap with our idea of the of the magic muscles but it's a it's a little bit different um but related and i think we we did kind of want to talk about like in my mind thinking of bodybuilding being that's very muscle a muscle approach but then strength training um, which I know, again, there's overlap there, like you're, you're training strength when you're bodybuilding, but it's a little different, mm-hmm. but just general mm-hmm. strength training. There does seem to be a distinction there where uh, there's often um, advocated this approach where you strength train movements, not muscles, right, Travis? Mm-hmm. That's like a thing in strength training, right? That some people at least advocate for. Yes, that is true. So when we when we say movement patterns, we're talking about training Mm -hmm. like focusing your training or conceptualizing your training more around movement patterns like squats and hip hinges and upper body pushing and pulling Mm -hmm. and lunging and twisting and locomotion those are kind of the the ones that i think of that different people call different people will categorize them in different ways Uh, but yeah like there's no muscles in that in any of those uh, descriptors. Right. right. It's like more of a focus on um, the movement pattern and then just whichever whichever muscles need to work in order to achieve that movement pattern, they'll, right. just, they'll just work. But you don't need to focus so much on, you're, you are firing mm-hmm. this muscle. It's just like you're doing a squat and everything that's working is what's working, right? Right. And then the idea behind that is that as long as you're addressing all of those major movement patterns, you will Mm -hmm. automatically work all of the muscles, which Mm -hmm. I think, I think that's a reasonable take. Mm -hmm. I also think that there might be some muscles, none of the magic muscles necessarily, or maybe, maybe some, but (laughs) uh, that, that don't get worked quite to the degree that I would like with just like those full body movement pattern approaches. I'm talking mm-hmm. about things like um the like the hip rotators or like the mm-hmm. or like the basically anything anything in the frontal or transverse plane like frontal moving side to side and transverse being rotation um but like you'd have to go out of your way to like you'd have to do lateral lunges to make sure right, that right. you're incorporating something in the frontal plane uh, just yeah. cuz most of those pushing pulling hinging bridging is occurring in the sagittal plane and if you only work in the sagittal plane then there are muscles that you're not quite hitting as as deliberately as you could if you took a movement and muscle approach exactly so so there's a good example of maybe where yeah taking that muscle approach could help it could help like maybe fill in some gaps where yeah taking just a movement pattern approach could get you know i don't know 90 percent. i don't know what percent you would suggest but yeah, it gets yeah, a yeah. lot done but maybe you also need to fill in a little bit if you truly want that like complete targeting of right everything. i i right. think so and i i also think like 
I, I, we talked about this in my exercise prescription course a couple of weeks ago and yes. I kind of, I just made up numbers, but it was like, if you only have 20 minutes for your mm -hmm. strength practice, you could probably just focus on those major movement patterns. But right. if you had 30 minutes, then maybe you focus on mostly major movement patterns and then sprinkle in a couple of the more muscle based yeah. ad additions. And then if you had an hour then still <laughs> focus mostly on the movement patterns, but now you have a little extra time to add some muscle spec like specific, more nitty gritty things. But yeah, main, yeah. you know, if you if you take that hour and you flipped it and you did 80% working your magic muscles and then <laughs> and then 20% yeah. of like squatting, deadlifting, pushing, pulling, mm -hmm. you're not getting as much bang for your buck as you could that totally that totally makes sense yeah so so that's like kind of one way we could conceptualize of like a movement-based approach or a movement pattern-based approach versus a muscle-based mm -hmm. approach in like a, a training a strength training context and mm -hmm. we could also think about it in terms more terms of like a yoga slash movement context where it's not so much strength training but it's um it's it's yoga and in a yoga, <laughs> in a yoga context, how, how do you how do you explain that besides it's yoga? I know I like I was hesitating there because I just you and I have talked so much about like is there strength training? How, like does yoga strengthen you? And right, just, right, like a whole topic that um, I know. It's yeah. not to say that there's not strength in yoga, but it's not the same thing as strength training. And maybe we mm -hmm. can refer people to uh, episode six where we talked about. Um, I think the title is like is Ashtanga yoga a cult? And the value of strength is kind of a random title, but episode six, we actually <laughs> go into that in a lot of depth and we've talked about it all throughout our, our work together. Yeah. But that's anyway, that's why I hes was hesitating there. Yeah. You right. get some strength in yoga, but it's not, yeah. it's not going to be the same. We know it's, what yoga does. Right. Right. We all know we, in our whole audience, we, we know our yoga practice. And so it's, it's distinct from something where maybe you're targeting your body for well-rounded strength all the way around in this progressive way. But when it comes to yoga and leading people through a yoga practice or just movement in general, you can also think about like taking a movement versus a muscle-based approach there. Mm -hmm. And I tend to see a lot of advocacy for taking the movement-based approach versus the muscle-based approach. Like, can you, um, can you lead people through movement? in a way that more just directs, uh, directs just the movement. And then the muscles that need to fire, your nervous system's automatically gonna fire them rather than maybe micromanaging which specific muscles they're using. Do you think that uh, yoga practice is better, not better suited, but more naturally lends itself to a movement approach because the names of the poses are don't have muscles in them? That's a really good, I've never, you mean because like in a strength training context, a lot of the names Chest muscles? press. Yeah. Shoulder press. Um, yeah. Although those are areas of the body and not, not so much muscles, right? Those exercise moves. Yeah. Well, right. Right. Cause they don't call it like deltoid press. Yeah. Or pec. Press. Yeah. That's uh, true. Rear, oh, rear delt curls. raise. Right. Yeah. So yeah. often. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, that's a really good point. Yeah. Because we, we certainly like in our yoga pose names, 
whether we use like the Sanskrit name or the English name, it's not, they're not muscle-based names. So I could certainly see that. I think that's a really, that's a really good question. Uh, but just to give people a bit of a clearer idea what of um, like an example of what I mean with like movement versus muscle-based um, cueing in a yoga context. Like one example mm -hmm. is say you're standing in like Tadasana mountain pose and you just bring one knee up to your chest. So you're basically moving uh, that hip into hip flexion, we would call that, that direction of movement. Mm -hmm. So you could, and I've, I've certainly seen this done, you could teach that movement where you, where you cue uh, something like use your psoas muscle, because that's one of your hip flexors. And I've certainly heard this partly because psoas is a muscle. It's a, yes. Use your psoas muscle to, to um, draw your knee up to your chest. And so the it's then like asking people to isolate, like, you know, we have multiple hip flexors. That's, you know, we have multiple mm -hmm. muscles that cross the joint that can do similar things, but you're asking people to try to isolate one, which they can't even do realistically. Anyway, no. they can't isolate a muscle or even, you know, it's just, yeah. So it's just confusing. It can kind of, you know, trip people up. It can make the movement maybe a little less efficient versus simply saying, lift your knee to your chest, you know, and then the muscles that need to work will just fire automatically. I can't believe. Yeah, they do. They they do. And again, like I said, I think it's specifically the psoas because it's like a extra popular muscle, but also transverse abdominis TDA is very commonly cued in yoga, like especially the cue um, navel to spine, which is yeah. like intending to, whether they say that muscle name or whether they're intending to get the specific muscle to fire. Yeah. That one at it's least more. makes more sense because that's the muscle that does that. <laughs> but the psoas... Yeah, either either way, it's going to be all of the muscles, not yeah, exactly. Ju just because you are, you know, I'm thinking of my psoas, I'm thinking of my psoas as I bring my knee up, like that's really going to do anything. Exactly. Yes, and doesn't maybe just interfere with what otherwise might be like smoother, more just automatic movement, you know? Yeah. So that's why sometimes it's taught in certain yoga teacher trainings to just you know cue movement as movement, and maybe maybe that entails you understanding the different directions of movement in the body, so that you can you know either use like you could use like hip flexion, or you could just you know draw your knee up, crease at the front of your hip, like try to use language that creates these actions without necessarily making it so, you know, kind of micromanaging muscle based. Uh, there's mm -hmm. another great tip that I've heard before that I, I try to embody in the way that I teach movement is teaching movement from the bones rather than from the muscles. Mm -hmm. uh, have you heard of that before, Travis, that distinction? Only from you, but I, yeah, I'm still, I think fuzzy, I you. still fuzzy on it. So like, what would you say to, instead of flex your hip, what would you say? I would actually just be super, it would just be, again, draw the knee up toward, it would be the same, but it's like, you're okay. asking a better, for me, a better example of that, I think of when I think of like pelvis movement. So, you know, mm -hmm. you can move your pelvis in many different ways and say per chance you wanted to instruct your students to like posteriorly tilt their pelvis or uh, tuck their pelvis. That's like another mm -hmm. word for it. Um, you could, and again, it's going to depend on the, like if we're talking strength training, maybe it's a little different. But in a yoga context, you could uh, suggest that people, um, I don't know, like lift their belly or lift their abdominals in order to pull the pelvis under or squeeze their glutes in order to do that. That would, Those would be like muscle-based cues. Or you could cue something like lift your two frontal hip points, which is the, those are like your um, mm. anterior superior iliac spine, or lift your pubic bone or, or lengthen your tailbone down, in which case you're actually cueing the movement of the actual bones. 
And then Got people it. don't have to like think about well, which muscles should I, should I engage the abdominals in the front or the glutes in the back? Like, which should I, it's just maybe don't think about that. Just think about move, tilt your pelvis, which is that's moving the bones and the that's muscles cool. that your nervous system wants to fire will fire. So it's just a way of kind of simplifying. Does that make sense? And, and the hip flexion example, if you're standing and if I cued knee to chest, that's also a movement from the bone, but it, that's not so distinct from the original example that I was giving, which was just movement yeah. versus muscle. Yeah. So it's just another well, way. Especially to when it. you're talking about pelvic motion where that can happen, like you said, through the abdominals or through the glutes. And then but you don't have to overspecify. Yeah. Exactly. And you could really apply that to so many joint actions all throughout the body. And mm -hmm. just kind of maybe just you know, learn the the directions of movement. Um, you know, and then your your teaching language may just kind of naturally arise to where you just cue. Uh, around those directions and the movement of the bones and things that get everything to happen without being so muscle muscle based. But I, I did mm -hmm. want to, of course, point out that that and again, it's always nuanced, but that it's not like um, I'm suggesting that we should never talk about muscles in yoga. Mm -hmm. There's a difference between uh, directing movement from the muscles uh, versus just maybe uh, maybe asking people to bring their attention to a muscle as an area of the body to notice like how it feels like maybe in a hamstring stretch like we all know the hamstrings are the muscles along the back of the thigh i'm totally not saying we shouldn't ever talk about the hamstrings in yoga you know you might say like what do you feel in your hamstrings but that's a little different that's more like on the sensation side you know what do you feel what do you notice what do you observe uh, and that's different than like actually directing movement which is more on like the motor or the movement side do you know does that mm -hmm. distinction sort of make sense yeah yeah. So again, it's never black or white. It's not to say, you know, it's fine. There, there are a lot of reasons why we might want to talk about muscles um, and cue movement, for, uh, not maybe not cue movement, sorry, uh, but in the yoga context, talk about muscles is like they help you locate areas of the body, uh, but maybe not so much in directing movement. Uh, maybe we should shift our attention to looking at some magic muscles and mm -hmm. just taking a little deeper dive into them for the purposes of, you know, learning more about the body and movement, but also looking at these examples and seeing like, maybe these muscles have been extra emphasized and treated in an extra specific way. And mm -hmm. could this just kind of maybe help us see um, where maybe that is helpful and maybe where it's not so helpful. And like, what does research suggest about these things? Mm -hmm. So this discussion of the magic muscles we wanna to touch on, it's certainly relevant for our yoga teaching and practice. Uh, and also in strength training, we're kind of like, we're kind of looking at these th three potential contexts here and also like rehab. So um, yeah, this, this next kind of conversation will maybe, maybe touch on all three of those realms and isn't so much just focused on whether we got like direct movement from the muscles, but it's more just about highlighting and pulling out specific muscles mm -hmm. um, as extra important. So our first magic muscle on the list that we wanted to talk about today is one I mentioned in the intro, which is this muscle in the low back called the quadratus lumborum, or you might hear it called the QL. And Travis, I'm sure you're familiar with the QL muscle, right? I am. Is it the muscle that assists the hip abductors on the opposite side? That's you a know, really well, good question. Let me start over. Do you know what the joint action of the QL is? Well, that's a really good question because 
we often learn joint actions for the QL in our anatomy mm -hmm. textbooks and in anatomy classes, but actually we scientific research doesn't actually really know exactly what the QL does. And mm. according to magic. the research, exactly. Okay. Well, actually maybe, maybe first we might want to point out why this muscle is a magic muscle. And in okay. my experience, at least it's usually because it's often blamed for low back pain. Right. I don't know if you've experienced that, but I see mm -hmm. that like all the mm -hmm. time. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, if you have uh, if you have pain in your low back, you uh, very likely may have like a quote tight QL or just something about your QL is what's an overactive QL. An overactive QL, exactly. You need uh, to relax. A tonic or... QL. Nobody uses that anymore. Yeah. But you've like ever heard that before? That. Like tonic, tonic and phasic. phasic. Yeah, yeah, I have. I don't think I've heard the QL in that. In no, that I don't know. It's terms, just another but... word. Yeah, I know. Right. But yeah, so just all these ideas. And I tend to see even in a yoga. So like, you know, yoga is not rehab. It's like a different context from rehab. But as we sometimes talk about on this podcast, sometimes there are these like blurred lines or gray areas where sometimes teachers um, bring in things like things to treat the body for pain into a yoga practice. And maybe a separate we can have a separate conversation about whether that's uh, stepping outside of one's lane and whether that's mm. within a yoga teacher's scope or practice, that's maybe not what we're talking about today. But I certainly hear yoga teachers teach like we are stretching the QL and that's going to make our back feel better. Or we're going to roll the QL out with like therapy balls, you know, like balls mm. and roll on them. Like Release the QL? Release the QL. Yeah, for sure. For <laughs> sure. For sure. So, so these are some examples to show like how it's propped up as a magic muscle, right? Right, right. Right. So that's kind of the language that you tend to hear about the quadratus lumborum. So I mentioned that it's in the low back, but maybe we should just be a little more specific so people um, have a better idea in case you, you hadn't learned about this muscle before. Mm -hmm. It's in the low back. It's a relatively deep low back muscle, and it runs from your 12th rib down to the top of your pelvis or the iliac crest. And you have one on either side, as we do with just about all of our muscles, like one on either side. So because of its location, we have historically been taught or heard that the QL does um, side bending or like hip hike, you right. know, like lifts so the hip, hip on hiking side. Would, hip hiking would be the, what I was referring to. It would be, yeah. Assisting abduction. So. And it's on the opposite side, right? Right. That would be what you, so what hikes people would the say. the right hip up in support of the left hip abductor. Theoretically. Yeah. Like it would work like in synergy or something. Yeah. Yeah. In theory, that's like certainly what you would learn about it. It's involved in hip hiking and side bending. And also if they both, both of them fire at the same time, it's supposed to be involved in extending the low back. Yeah. Spinal extension. Yeah. So these are the things that you learn about it. And because of all of that, it's so low back surrounded and it's supposed to like act on the low back. That's partly why it's, I think it's connected to like low, like why people say it's connected to low back pain. Because mm -hmm. it's right there, like on the, in the lumbar spot. spine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it runs right along your lumbar spine. So it hurts it actually, right here. Right. So it seems like you're. Oh, that's your QL. Right? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But first of all, first of all, and this is a common theme that will run through all these magic muscles. But um, you know, we, we definitely tend to have like a musculoskeletal bias in terms of when we're naming a structure for pain or naming any mm -hmm. source of pain. It's just really easy to be like, well, what muscle is it? But sometimes we maybe forget that we have all these other tissues and structures in the body 
beyond just like muscles, you know, like including blood vessels and nerves and fascia and lymph and just all this other stuff. And we know, and we've talked a ton on this podcast about how pain is a biopsychosocial phenomenon. Anyway, it's not always just the bio or just like your actual, you know, like the physical tissues. Um, it could be bio in terms of it being something more systemic uh, and just like more physiological, like inflammation or something, or it could be psycho, it could be social, it could be related to beliefs that you have or um, uh, influences from society and people that you know and what people tell you about the body. So anyway, yeah. and, may, and maybe the and maybe more likely the combination of all three. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Like, yes, it's rare, rarely if ever just like one single thing. So to even say and throw out to just the general public, like, oh, you have low back pain, it's got to be your QL. Hmm. Like, like that's one of those indiscriminate recommendations, right? Like you talked about toward the beginning. Right. Um, I think too, when we're thinking about low back pain, I heard this really great uh, podcast interview with Peter O'Sullivan. I'm sure you know who he is, mm -hmm. physical therapist and researcher. And he was just talking about how um, when we have like a headache, when we have a headache, we, we don't ever think that the reason we have a headache is because you like just banged your head and that you like cause like physical, like to the bio, like you banged your head and that's why you have a headache. We're always like, oh, I didn't. I didn't sleep well, or I didn't have my caffeine, or I'm stressed. Oh, wow. You know, we tend to just default to that for a headache. And he was yeah. just—he was just suggesting it's the same. Well, really, with the whole rest of the body, but he was specifically talking about the oh, low back. I love that. Right? Like, why do we always default to like it has to be something structural in the back? Like, couldn't it just be I had a stressful day? Um, I, I wasn't sleeping well this week. Like, like why don't we default to those more? other mm -hmm. types of answers why do we always want to point to structure but with our head with a headache you know we're never like oh i fell and banged my head and that's why i have a headache unless you literally did fall and bang your right, head, right 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 like, that's like 0.001 of the headaches yeah so. uh, or unless you busted up your back doing something yes where, Travis, then it totally. makes sense but it's like so, oh my back so aches right. today and you go right to the ql exactly <laughs> or or your provider does or your provider does or your yoga teacher does if they're teaching you you know you've got a tight ql <laughs> and then there's also the, the other Everybody side in the room yeah um it also could be too um if it's not a yoga teacher saying you you have low back pain this is why let's roll it out there's also a lot of language around like um if you have a tight ql it's going to cause you back pain if it doesn't already. So these lang language That's around these magic dangerous. muscles that like, yeah, that like, well, maybe you don't have the pain now, but you're going to, unless you do yeah. what I tell you, you need we to. We better know. roll this out to prevent your low back pain. Just a quick moment to interject and to thank you for listening to this episode of the Yoga Meets Movement Science Podcast. If you've been appreciating the work we put into this podcast to help uplift and empower our community with better information, science-based thinking, and solid education about the body and movement, consider becoming a supporter of our show to help our message grow even further. You can support our work with this podcast starting at just $3 a month, and you can cancel any time, of course. The link to become a supporter is in the show notes. Just look for the text, become a supporter of the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. We truly appreciate your support for the work that we do with this podcast and the educational resource that it is for our yoga community. And now back to our episode.
So these lang- language That's around these magic dangerous. muscles that like, yeah, that like, well, maybe you don't have the pain now, but you're going to, unless you do yeah. what I tell you, you need we to. We better know. roll this out to prevent your low back pain. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> wrong, wrong in so many ways. Exactly, exactly. So let's um let's just finish talking about the QL. So here's the thing about the quadratus lumborum that I discovered upon some research about this muscle, which is that although we tend to hear in our anatomy books that it does those actions we spoke about, actually, uh, it's actually not really known what its actual actions are. And there was this awesome study done, Phillips et al. 2008, where they actually looked at cadavers and they looked at like the fascicle angles of the QL and they did all these measurements and they discovered that that at most the quadratus lumborum contributes at most 10% to side bending, which is lateral flexion, or to mm-hmm. spinal extension, which is back bending. And uh, in comparison to erector spinae and multifidus, which are two other, and especially erector spinae, they're more superficial and that's a much bigger muscle complex in the all the way up and down the spine, but in the low back. So these, so this research was just like the QL, like hardly acts on the lumbar spine at all. It's wow. at most 10% compared to erector spinae and multifidus, but we don't hear erector spinae, at least not very, not, not far, yeah, not, not nearly as erectors. often, right? Multifidus. Yeah. That right. could be Which that's, magic muscle. That's a magic muscle that's not on our list, but yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, That's they funny. were just like at most, you know, it's like they, they were just suggesting we don't really know what it does. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I did see, so someone you and I've talked about before, Travis Rich Severin, who is he's PhD physiotherapist and he's a cardiopulmonary specialist. So he knows a lot about like breathing and the breath. I've interviewed him for my blog before. Um, and I just had remembered a few years ago, he put something out on social media, questioning all the focus on the QL. And he suggested, based on what he knew of breathing in the body, that the QL's actual job is not lateral flexion um, and hip hiking and spinal extension, but its job is actually to stabilize the 12th rib on the inhale or on inspiration. Mm-hmm. Like it just plays a role. It's like a breathing muscle to keep like the rib cage down or the bottom rib down as you inhale. Um, oh, and the other thing about the QL, sorry, I should have said this from the very beginning because we're about to move on. But the other <laughs> thing about the QL is that it's actually um, uh, cross-sectionally, it's very small. It's like a very thin muscle. And that's what the researchers qu- were reporting. Quadrangle shaped, right? That's why it's called quadratus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Like, like- It's uh, all coming yeah. back to me. Yeah, totally. So it's just like not even a very thick or big muscle. You know, it does span from the bottom rib down to the pelvis. But as far as muscle thickness wise, it's not even like a very thick. It's like very small. Not like our other magic muscles. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> but just to treat it as though it's playing this huge role, um, right. you know, whether it's so pain the, the or magic or... muscle in this case should really be the erectors. Yeah, I think in this case, yeah. <laughs> not that we're advocating for. Let's let's give um, a substitute for all seven muscles. <laughs> we could. We'll see if we can. Um, do you think we covered QL well enough right now to move on to our next? Because we've got a few more to talk about. But yeah, just is this? Yeah, the point is like, um, do we need to be pulling that muscle out and highlighting it? Maybe in some very specific, probably pretty rare instances. Maybe you know, but that's not really the context of like a yoga movement class right. um, to be pulling, you know, needing to make a big deal out of this magic muscle. 
Mm-hmm. So our, our next muscle on the list, and I'm sure, Travis, you've heard about this one. This is like an age-old one. It's an age-old one. What is, what is it? Will you tell us what it is? The next magic muscle is the VMO or vastus medialis obliquus, which is one That's of right. our four quadriceps muscles. Totally. And uh, vastus medialis indicates that it is medial, so it's on yeah. the inner not inner thigh because that that's where the adductors are, but it's right. more inner than outer. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So your and your quads, just in case people don't know, like what are the yeah. quads? Oh yeah, so the quads are the muscles, the four muscles, quads mm-hmm. on the fronts yeah. of the thighs that extend the knee, uh, yeah. and then the rectus femoris, the most superficial one, also flexes the hip, as that's we right. alluded to earlier. Uh, but right. prim- primarily, when people think about them, these are the knee extension muscles. So that's right. Squats, right lunges, knee. yeah, anything like sitting to standing. Right, exactly. Yep, chair the big pose. thigh muscles. Um, yeah, exactly. Chair pose. A lot of yoga poses, like standing yoga poses, tend to be very quad focused on right. the front leg. On the front yeah. leg. So you're getting a lot of VMO work. You just didn't know. <laughs> But not just VMO work, as we'll explain. Right. So the reason that that we're pulling this muscle out to focus on is because it is a muscle that historically has been very much blamed for knee pain, and specifically a type of knee pain, uh, patellofemoral pain, PFP. And just to break that down anatomically, in case those words sound like, what does that mean? Your patella is your kneecap. And then uh, femoral for your femur, which is your thigh bone. So it's basically like pain at the front of the knee. Would you say, Travis? That's what patellofemoral knee pain is. And that's Mm -hmm. related to the quadriceps because all four quadriceps are on the front thigh, but then they converge down and they like engulf the kneecap and then they converge into a single tendon that attaches on the front of your shin. Mm -hmm. So um, they're super relevant for the kneecap basically and any pain that you might have around the knee. So historically, okay. yeah, <laughs> historically patellofemoral pain or that front knee pain uh, has been blamed or, or a big culprit for that pain has thought to have been specifically the vastus medialis obliquus, the VMO. So technically the muscle itself is just the vastus medialis, but it, it has two parts, a higher part and a lower part. And it's specifically this lower part that's the VMO, the vastus medialis obliquus. And the upper part of the muscle is like the longest, the vastus medialis longus, just to be extra anatomy geeky about this. And I think a lot of people will recognize, um, Travis, you know, like the teardrop of the quadricep, the teardrop? I know it well. When people have like defined quads, right? They often have mm-hmm. that te- yes, And I think people can a, probably think about that. It's a desirable that. look. Exactly. Yes. Aesthetically. Yeah. Right. So like that, right where that teardrop is, which is usually like kind of on the inner knee, um, on the lower thigh, that's basically the VMO. That's like kind of where that is. So basically knee pain, a lot of knee pain had been blamed on, um, the VMO and basically like a timing issue or a strength issue. It's usually one or the other, both. And the idea. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was just going to say. Intertwined. 
because the idea is that the VMO um, either uh, and or has like a slight delay in firing or like timing, like a matter of milliseconds, or that it's weaker relative to um, the vastus lateralis, which is like the other quad on the other side. So the idea is that that creates this imbalance either in timing or in strength, and that pulls the kneecap off track and creates that kneecap tracking issue. I bet people have heard of this like kneecap tracking. I feel like I've, that's kind of a buzz term, right? Mm -hmm. So the idea mm -hmm. is that, yeah, you have VMO problems and that's that's causing kneecap tracking problems and that's what's causing your knee pain. You have heard about this before, right? Yes, for sure. And, and, and do you know what people, what historically had been like prescribed to treat that knee pain? Yeah, VMO isolation. That's Let's right. Let's find Travis. exercises where we can isolate the VMO independent of the other quads that are already fine or over assumed to be yeah fine. better developed compared to our underdeveloped VMO, and then we mm -hmm. can specifically target the VMO to correct our timing or strength imbalance, and That's therefore right. correct our kneecap tracking and fix our patellofemoral pain syndrome. Yes. And this is the old paradigm that's still totally kicking around out there, but that's it. Mm -hmm. And like um, examples of VMO exercises, like where you're trying to isolate to somehow correct the timing or increase the strength. One example of that is like, say you're sitting with your legs straight out in front of you, like in yoga, Dandasana, and then you externally rotate the leg of the knee of interest. So you turn your toes out and then you lift and lower that leg. That's one example of like a, that's supposed to like isolate the VMO. Or you could do something like, um, like a, like a wall squat or a wall sit with like a ball between your knees and then you squeeze into the ball. These are just some kind of classic, uh, physical therapy exercises for like isolating the VMO. So that's historically what's been done. Uh, but we actually know now from, and this, like you said, this is kind of an old, um, an old story. And so it's, it's been outdated for a while now, but, um, what we know is that just general exercise, especially for like the knee and the hip, just general, not like this hyper-specific focused on the VMO, but general knee and hip exercise are actually really the evidence-based approach for addressing knee pain. And they work just as well, if not better than these like VMO specific approaches. And we have a lot well, of research that? that shows that. Well, so the VMO approaches did work. Like they, people did feel better with like, with that, but it's just like, they also feel better from just general exercise. And so when you say, why is that? I think it's probably just because the, the mediating variable you might say is just like, um, graded loading, you know, just getting people moving mm -hmm. and slowly increasing load over time, whether that's with these specific VMO exercises or just general squats and lunges and whatever you're going to do in general to load these areas right. but then also just the idea of is or are those specific vmo isolation exercises actually isolating the vmo and is that even neuromuscularly possible, possible. or plausible such a good question and it turns out travis that it's not possible what? it's not possible to isolate the vmo yeah and we have like a, a lot of research to show this there's only one nerve that innervates all of the quadriceps, you know, the femoral nerve, and they all fire together. And you can't, like, it's not possible to just fire your VMO. Like, you just can't, you can't do it. 
So it's just like, it's like an illusion to think that you could isolate it. And then another illusion, I thought this one was really cool to learn about when I was researching this, is that the assumption had often been that your VMO was like underdeveloped, you know, like when you have mm -hmm. this knee pain. Or another word mm. for that is atrophied. Atrophied, that's like muscle atrophy. But we yeah. actually have research that looked into this and it found that when people have patellofemoral pain, all four of the quadricep muscles are all atrophied to an equal extent. All of them mm. are. It's just that because the VMO is like that prominent teardrop muscle, it's a little more obvious to our eye. So we mm. might see it and be like, oh, that looks, you know, like it's smaller or whatever um, because it right. just stands out to us more. But really all of them can atrophy when people have knee pain all of them together. So it's not that it happens um, in an isolated yeah. manner anyway. And then right? the last nail in the coffin. What's the last nail? Is that when you do those VMO exercises, you're, and you get better, your patellar tracking doesn't change, right? Thank you for saying that. Yes. And we have research to show that as well. Yeah. People Which get out of, yeah. super surprising if you know, right. like there are a bunch of examples of people getting better from interventions that were thought to do something specific from a nitty gritty biomechanical standpoint and nothing yeah. changed when they remeasure those biomechanics, but they feel better. So it wasn't right. the explanation that we once thought, which lends itself to the idea that maybe you don't need to do these specific VMO exercises because that didn't actually change what you thought it was changing. And it, what the reason you got better is the more general effects of exercise. That's right. Of exercise, which that works on so many levels and in so many ways right. it's yeah. Yeah. And that's probably why those VMO exercise, uh, VMO um, programs to treat this pain, you know, to the extent that they do work, that's probably why they work. It's not because of the specific exercise. It's just because it was, movement and exercise, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and the kneecap tracking doesn't change after them anyway. And you can't isolate view. I mean, you can see how many holes there are with this approach. It's like kind of a long laundry list. And that's, it's a very obvious one, I think, that um, has really been exposed through research. Although... Yeah, but people are still talking about it. So When I did my research not, for not this obvious enough. episode, I, found, I saw tons on Google about like VMO exercise. Like it's like you said. It's totally yeah. out there, but hopefully through like this education on this episode, hopefully may maybe a few people will think twice about those claims if they see them. Yeah. Um. So, so that's VMO. And we wanted to point it out because it's an example. We think it's an example of a magic muscle. It's oh, mostly yeah. relevant, um, more like in a rehab context, I would say like that whole conversation we just had is maybe a little more rehab based than like yoga movement or even strength training. But still, it's just um, it's just helpful for us to look at, you know, like when mm -hmm. when do these muscles really matter in the way that we hear them discussed? Right. And our, our replacement magic muscle for this can be all of the knee extension. Well, all of the knee and hip muscles. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's right, Travis. Yes. So instead of the magic muscle of the single, it's not even one muscle. It's one part of one muscle. It's the VMO, right. like the lower part. Instead of just getting so hyper specific. It could just be all, all of them. Yeah, either all the quads or, but the the recommendation is general knee and hip strengthening. So mm -hmm. that's the current uh, official position on, yeah. on that knee pain. Yeah. Just generally strengthen the knee and the hip, which is great. That's like, that means we have so many more options. 
you know, it, it means we don't have to be so specific and that's a good thing. And that like frees us up. Right. I think so. What's our next, what's our next magic muscle on our list to take a look at? Today? Our next one is the transverse abdominis. Woohoo! Which we've talked about before. Yes. No, maybe we so. have Travis. And that's why Not I was going to suggest maybe we don't. Maybe we won't talk about it a ton today because we have addressed it on the podcast sure. before. We talked about it in our um, episode on the core, which I okay. think is called The Truth About Core Training, and it might be episode four or something. So we did talk about it then. Um, so maybe we don't have to talk about it a ton here, but it is a magic muscle. How do you see it pulled out as a as a magic muscle? Like what makes it a magic muscle? Pilates. <laughs> <laughs> The whole field of Pilates. <laughs> Just, yeah. Yeah. That's all. No, uh, the the cueing about, well, it's it's commonly cited as the cause dun, 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 yeah. for back pain. And then right. the, the fix is activating the TA for all your core and really just like all the time everywhere. Walk around mm -hmm. belly button <laughs> to, to spine, uh, but like drawing your navel in. Um, yeah. Or abdominal hollowing. That's the other. Yeah, that's term another term, it, right? Yeah. Um. So yeah, the the thought process is that the TVA is not firing or not firing in the appropriate timing or sequence relative mm -hmm. to the other core muscles or or any muscle. I forget what the that early research said, but uh or oh, what, like right. what the task was but the I point think is it was that, like an arm reach or something yeah with the limbs moving yeah the yeah. The, the idea is like your 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 tva in healthy individuals was firing a few milliseconds earlier yeah uh than the people with back pain so therefore people with back pain have a tva timing issue that they need to do a bunch of motor control exercises to fix so there's there there are many flaws in that argument the first being yes. the magnitude of the timing issue um but the second just then being that we need to fix this timing so we need to do all of these exercises with this extra navel to spine focus yeah um and that's going to cure our back pain <laughs> that's right that's right that early research that showed this correlation between people with back pain and that tiny millisecond delay in the firing yeah. of that muscle hodges which right? yeah paul hodges yeah but travis is it 98 or something long time ago that sounds good yeah <laughs> isn't even just the the so he did some research that did show this connection but is that necessarily mm -hmm. did that necessarily mean that their tva tiny tiny delay was causing their back pain did it show that travis <laughs> if no because it was cross-sectional right so could have mm -hmm. been that the people who had pain, their pain inhibited their, mm -hmm. or not inhibited, but altered their, the timing of those muscles rather than the muscular timing preceding, issue preceding and then right. causing the pain. That's right. Like, yeah, the research didn't show us either way. Like it didn't say there was a causal connection, but it was so, it was just extrapolated to mean that by a bunch of people. Obvious. And then like, it's obvious, right? Right, right. <laughs> And then Pilates and then, was born and just like the whole fields of core stability. And yeah, I know it's Pilates not just was Pilates, a lot but, before that, right? Oh, that's true. You're totally right. It was, um, it wasn't born, but just the idea of core stability. And that's really big in Pilates in general. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, this idea that like navel to spine or similar cueing um, activates the transverse abdominis and just generally, like you said, Travis, in an indiscriminate manner, it's kind of assumed that we just all need to do that. Like we all mm-hmm. need to correct all our TBA. Yeah. Yeah. So clear. So the assumptions were made that aren't really supported that the TVA delay in firing caused back pain. But then I think there's also this assumption just that we also just need to engage it in order to prevent back pain, right? It's kind of like mm. two ways. Mm-hmm. That's at least how I often see it treated in like a yoga movement context, you know? It's like mm-hmm. to keep your back safe or protected, you need to draw your navel <laughs> right. in. Oh, man. So, yeah, there's a lot so that maybe, yeah. It is, right? <laughs> but, I mean, it seems silly, but it is still super widespread out there. Yeah. In general. But, but Travis, are our spines, I guess this is a good question, are our spines inherently unstable structures for, to begin with? Like, is it something we need to like, be concerned like if with? Like, if we aren't activating our TVA, are we just going to fall apart? Yes, like like a stack of blocks. Will they just right. crumple our spine? Spinal uh, column. Yeah, I don't. I don't think so. I think I think the spine is more robust, more That's more right. stable naturally, without us even having to think about drawing our belly buttons in. As if that even created more stability to begin As if with. Even, so do, does drawing the navel in even create more? No, stability? no. <laughs> Why not? There, it. There's research that there's shows research, that yeah. there's, it's less stable. There's a, yeah, there's a better way. You know, if you are, if the goal is to create stability, which should be task specific, not just, oh, I need to make sure I'm, my spine is stable when I'm walking around or picking up a pencil. Yeah. But if you want to create more stability through, uh, because the activity that you're about to do demands it, such as lifting a heavy object, mm-hmm. then the way that you want to do that is not through navel to spine, but rather through co-contracting all of the muscles generally. Mm-hmm. So no magic muscle here, but trying to create right. rigidity through the entire torso or midsection, which is called an abdominal brace. It's called a brace. Exactly. And that's different than navel to spine, which is, yeah, different than like Halloween or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, research actually shows that um, the navel of the spine is less stable for the spine than a brace, which, like you said, it's global engagement of all of the muscles around the trunk. And that's a that's a strategy you might utilize if it was like heavy weightlifting or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, the brace, mm-hmm. the brace would be, but yeah, it's like which really doesn't pop up in yoga. Yeah, <laughs> yes, like back squatting, so, hundreds of yeah, pounds. Yeah, you. Or... I mean, is that? Can you think of an example of a yoga pose where? it's important to volitionally brace like as you're getting into or maintaining. That's a great question. And off the top of my head, no. Yeah. Although I I think in. The only thing that comes to mind is like handstand. Like that's legitimately, that's a high load. You're supporting your hands upside or your body weight upside down. Right. But even there, like, I don't necessarily, you're, you want to, you know, if you want to get a nice line, like yes. a nice like shape aesthetic line in space, yeah, then there's some contraction of abs and glutes that has to happen, but it's not really. Yeah, bracing. and also too, um, like in handstand, I try to really reach up through my legs, which would mean like I'm engaging the quads. Like it's just kind of from head to toe. For me, everything mm-hmm. is like kind of trying to yeah. be intense. Yeah, which would yeah. include it's the. It's not core. a hollow. Yeah, for me, it wouldn't be. Yeah. 
Yeah. I w- what, one thing I was going to suggest, and I don't know, and I, but I mean, if someone maybe had like sensitivity in their back um, and they were going to go into a certain yoga pose that involved a certain range of motion, maybe they would want to, they could experiment with like volitionally sure. creating a core contraction and maybe that would help um, modulate some, you know, sensitivity. Like, yeah, in terms that's of, like, like a pain. case by case. But yeah. it's case by case. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Not just like a yeah, general. Not like, like everybody in the room. Draw yes. your belly button in and then do, I don't know, what would be a pose where you'd be told to draw your belly button in? All the time. All of them. <laughs> in many yoga yeah, classes all the time. But yeah. yeah, for sure. In certain, it depends on who the teacher is. But but like back bends, for sure. I mean, there's just many, many poses. Arm balances. So I think that's the main point. There's actually a lot more we could probably say about TVA. And we did say a lot more in uh, episode, Mm -hmm. I believe it's four, all about the core training episode. So we'll refer people there. But like the point is, we wanted to just um, highlight this muscle because in my opinion, it's one of the biggest magic muscles out there, at least from what I see in my, what I tend to see out there. And the point is... um, for most cases, and especially in a ge- generic yoga movement context, we don't need to be pulling that muscle out and making it a magic yeah. or extra important muscle, right? We don't, right. we just could maybe, kind of let that go. Before we move on, maybe we should have said what the TVA is <laughs> anatomically. <laughs> You're totally right, Travis. Yes. What? Sorry, we didn't do that in the beginning. What is the TVA? It's like the corset muscle, right? That kind of yeah around your around. abdomen. Yeah. So that's right. Contracting it does draw in. Kind of hugs in. (laughs) Drawing in contracts it. That's right. Oh, but we should point out drawing in, drawing in or navel to spine does contract it, but not in isolation. Mm -hmm. It also contracts other muscles at the same time. Funnier because you think that you're isolating the TVA, but you're actually contracting all of the other muscles. Yeah. Other abdominals, your pelvic floor, your diaphragm. Like a bunch more contracts when you do navel the spine than just. That's a common theme. Right. That you can't isolate muscles. Volitionally. Right. Right. So like all the muscles we've talked about so far, you think that you're like, whether you're attempting to strengthen it or you're attempting to apply external pressure to it, like self-massage. Oh, right. Especially with these deeper muscles, you're not even, well, with the, contraction other muscles are contracting with the self-massage if if it's a deeper muscle you're not even getting to it anyway <laughs> yeah totally which like like the psoas which is on our list to talk which about is, yeah right uh should we just jump to and cover the psoas quickly because we just yeah it seems relevant it. for what you were just saying it wasn't like in mm-hmm. our order to do now but let's and so as we've also talked about this on the podcast before, so again, I don't think we'll spend too much time discussing the psoas, but I'm sure many of our listeners can relate to having heard of this as a buzz term muscle. Um, what's the psoas, Travis? The psoas is a deep hip, a deep hip flexor, uh, yeah. often or oft, yeah, sometimes are often lumped together with the iliacus. That's right. To be called the iliopsoas, um, but it seems like in yoga more people just talk about it talk separately about the as psoas. the psoas because it must—it's so magical. It's so magical, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, you rarely—I rarely hear talk about the iliacus. Um, I mean, it's out there, yeah. but it's much more yeah. just like the psoas. But the iliacus, I think, does the same thing. As it, far as hip like, flexion, yeah, the, yeah. 
Yeah, because the psoas and the iliacus they converge converge in a common tendon, um, mm. distally, but but um, superiorly or up higher they're different because the iliacus only goes from your pelvis down to your femur. It only crosses the hip joint, but the psoas actually uh, it attaches to this at the same place that the iliacus does, but it runs a lot higher and it's like kind of knitted into uh, the side of your lumbar spine your low back basically. So it like attaches to mm. the vertebral bodies of uh, T12 to L5. These are naming vertebrae. And then also okay. attaches so to the trans why... transverse processes of L1 to L5. So it's, yeah, it's connected through the lumbar spine and then it runs down and crosses your hip. That's why it's more magical. Exactly. Because it crosses, the more, the more joints it crosses, the more magical it is interesting that's that's the case with this one for sure <laughs> with this magic muscle no, yeah um but yeah one thing it does have in common with some other magic muscles we've talked about uh, and maybe we'll get to also is that it's deep and you were just talking about this <laughs> before we and this is something i was going to suggest um as far as one thing i think sometimes unifies a lot of these magic muscles is that for some reason it's just kind of assumed that when a muscle is deeper it must be more more magical like yeah. there's something about it you know than the superficial muscles yeah. oh those are be that's not as interesting because because its role supposedly and i think this has maybe also been overstated but it's more of a stabilizer yeah and i also see that like i think it's a little unknown kind of like with the ql a lot of people assume what it does but actually it's not really known i think it's mm -hmm. a little uh, uncertain if it does lumbar spine stabilizations but I, but i do see it said in studies that the psoas does do that it does stabilize the yeah. lumbar spine or, or any of the magic muscles like in conjunction with them being deeper mm -hmm. the reason maybe they're deeper is because they have more stabilizing roles and then when you talk when stability gets involved in the definition that there's all sorts of magic that <laughs> ensues You're so right but travis did, did you know that oh right especially from a rehab or perspective but did you know that going back to our discussion about the core and the transverse abdominis you know it's that's a deep muscle and it's called a stabilizer mm -hmm. but as you already described um with the brace the bracing strategy for stabilization um which that's the actual research supported means of creating stabilization that's global muscle recruitment all the way around the trunk including deep and superficial right. like all of it mm -hmm. and the point mm -hmm. being that Sometimes we do hear that the deeper muscles are called stabilizers and the superficial ones are called movers, but I believe that that's like a false dichotomy and yeah. that actually your nervous system just will recruit either superficial or deep. It doesn't really matter. It's just like, depends on the task. Like, what are you doing? How are you moving? And then a certain muscle right. may be a stabilizer. It may be a mover. It just depends on the task. Yeah. That's my understanding of it too, as, as compared to like people talking about the inner and outer core, right? Yes. Like, oh, the outer core moves, the inner core stabilizes. It doesn't, uh, though. I think that's a probably, false dichotomy. Probably not. Yeah. Or, or at least an oversimplification. Right. Um, and I don't know, but in our common everyday language, when something is deep, it's like extra special or extra meaningful. We you can't know, like see sex. it as easily. So it's more it's, magical. It's more mysterious, more magical. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so that I really do think there's something about just our bias and the way our brains work. But when a muscle is deep, we kind of automatically jump to like, it's got to be more special. But it doesn't actually, when it comes to your nervous system and how it coordinates your movement, it's just like all the muscles are, are equal. But anyway, the psoas is deep. Muscle equality. That's the... Yeah. <laughs>
That's right. The bottom You're line. So funny. Yeah, that's equality right. for all six hundred thirty-nine. <laughs> They're all equal equal rights. Um, but I'm okay. So so as everybody knows, that's a magic muscle. It's it's discussed mm-hmm. in terms of um, it, it's supposedly a cause of back pain for sure. Like a quote mm-hmm. tight psoas causes back pain. And then we've talked about this a few times on the podcast. It's also held up as a magic muscle because it's claimed to store your emotions and your trauma and your stress. Just like all of that is supposedly deposited in the psoas. Uh, I mm-hmm. don't, we, we don't have time to, and we've discussed this before. We can refer people to um, episode uh, nine, maybe. Do we store emotions in our hips? Mm-hmm. I think it's episode nine, but anyway, go, go check out that one for that a, a, a richer discussion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of problems with that, with those claims. It's not evidence-based or research-based at all. It's more just like a, a story or kind of like a myth around the psoas, but it's not anything that the science actually supports that the psoas like holds emotions or trauma. Yeah, it's a cute story. It's a nice story. Stories are great. <laughs> but when you try to then, you know, say that they're scientific, that's where I, I see a problem with that. It's where you draw the line. Yes. Um, I have this graphic that I've posted on social media a few times over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, or it's just a graphic that says the psoas just as special as all 600 muscles of the body. <laughs> That's what it says. And then it just talks about what we're kind of talking about right now, like how it's held and out. And the people, is... people in the comments are like, no. I know, Jenny, but actually. That can't it's, be true. Exactly. It's the most important. It's just as how special you? as all 600 other muscles. Like we don't need to pull it out and make it more, more magical. Um, it's a hip flexor. It's probably a lumbar spine stabilizer. That's what it does. Like all the muscles that do stuff, they move, they stabilize. Um, it's just like all the other muscles that way. Le- yeah. Listen to the other episode for more of a conversation about that. <laughs> well, we had a couple more muscle uh, muscles on our list. We knew we were not really going to talk about the glutes, but we did want to mm-hmm. just mention them. Like that's a very popular magic muscle. We did a whole entire episode on the glutes in which we really mm-hmm. delved into it. So we probably refer people to that episode, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but we even talk in that episode our one, about. Our one counter example of the, like a pretty big and superficial muscle. You're totally that, right. That's magic. Exactly. It's a magical muscle that's not deep. It's like yeah. one of the. But we're not going to talk about it on this episode. No, we're not going to talk about it. It doesn't fit our bias. <laughs> the rest of them are deep. <laughs> no, right. we're not talking about it because we already have gone through it in painstaking detail. In our other episode, but we wanted to include it so that, yeah, so it's like, it is one of those magic muscles. And another one that I don't think we will um, talk about today is the piriformis. We talked about this one in our episode on pigeon pose. So we actually have also covered this one, but um, it's a, it's a deep, (laughs) it's a deep hip Mm -hmm. rotator. So it's like one of your deep hip muscles. So it does kind of fall in that pattern of a lot of magic muscles being deep. It's blamed for, uh, it's commonly blamed for the cause of a lot of pain and, uh, and commonly a target, uh, you know, like to intervene when there's pain or if you want to prevent pain or blah, blah, blah. But as we mm-hmm. talked about in the other episode, it's um, kind of pulled out and highlighted as a magic muscle that's actually not really warranted by, by what the science would suggest. Um, yeah, so we can refer people to that episode. But I do think this, uh, thinking about the piriformis does bring up one thing I I did want to make sure we mentioned today, which was that in a rehab physical therapy context, we've talked about this on the podcast before, Travis, but would you agree that there's a trend toward 
diagnoses uh, becoming much more general and less specific, Mm -hmm. right? Like that's kind of a trend in the field in general as like seeing these overall uh, insights from research on all these like specific parts of the body that. Mm -hmm. That's why I I thought maybe patellofemoral pain syndrome, they weren't even calling that that anymore, but maybe they still are. But I know like rotator cuff uh, or shoulder impingement, they were called, they're now calling rotator cuff related pain or something shoulder like that. pain rotator cuff related shoulder pain that's right yeah yeah they don't call it impingement sure syndrome anymore because that's too specific mm-hmm. um yeah well uh in the with the piriformis something that used to be called quote piriformis syndrome uh it's not called that anymore it's just called deep gluteal syndrome because the main point mm. is like there are many tissues and structures in the hip that could be you know involved in what's going on of course um also just so much else from like the psychosocial realm and just systemic like it's just so much more than just that yeah so it's more um, about the region it's the region yeah it's like you have pain in the deep gluteal you have pain in your shoulder Mm -hmm. or the rotator cuff area you know like we use these terms these terms are being um uh brought into like the common diagnoses now that are just more general (laughs) i guess patellofemoral pain is already general because it's not that's right uh, travis implicating a specific muscle or it's structure it's just like that spot <laughs> that hurts that's it, exactly which is like, it maybe maybe for some people that's like a frustrating situation it's like i just want to know what's wrong and it's like well it's generally that area of the body um but i i, I kind of find it to be encouraging because i think it also lends itself to the idea that there can be a general approach to treatment Yes, 100%. Yeah. And that's what, that's what I think you were, you were kind of getting caught up on like, that can't be the the real uh, right. diagnosis, like the that, current diagnosis. Been that. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but it's because it's just catch all. It's just like you have pain at the front of your knee. We're not naming, you know. When I first found out about that, I was like, that's kind of a silly uh, name for a condition that doesn't mean anything. Uh, but now, but, yeah. like you said, we're moving towards more naming conventions that also similarly don't mean that much but but for a reason right for a good yes we can't we are discovering that we can't be as specific as we once thought which goes back to all of what we've been talking about 100 over specification an anatomical over specification standpoint precisely so just the whole the whole reason or kind of the whole part of this message of magic muscles is just like they're examples of being very specific about anatomy and there may be some some contexts where that does seem helpful but in many contexts it's probably not the best strategy and um, we don't really know what's really going on on this specific tissue structure level it's probably more evidence based to just be more generic and um, less specific. Another good, um, another good diagnosis along these lines is non-specific low back pain. <laughs> Don't you think there, that's a, another? Right, it's right in the name of it. non Exactly. Right. That's like perfect. that's yeah. It's like they they don't really know what's what structure or tissue is causing. And again, even saying that is like assuming it's a, tr- a tissue or structure, right. and it may not be. But mm-hmm. um, instead, it's more just like, yeah, you have pain in this region of the low back and it's nonspecific and that's what we're going to call it. It's mm-hmm. kind of the same as patellofemoral and all, all the others. So it does seem like um, like the evidence-based physical therapy circles that 
that are keeping up with the current research, like that's the trend is like, let's just be more. In, in many cases, I'm, I know that there are some painful conditions where being specific, like maybe with a tendinopathy or something, like there are some cases yeah. where being specific does matter, but mm -hmm. in many persistent pain conditions, it's like, what makes sense is to just be general, right? Mm -hmm. So Travis, I kind of think we've thoroughly gone through uh, this list. These are magic muscles that we wanted to at least name. I know we didn't really discuss all of them, uh, mm -hmm. but we did discuss most of them. And then just the general overall concept of magic muscles and what it might suggest to us as far as like how we do or don't use muscles or kind of come from that approach in maybe the movement modality that we practice or teach. Right. And there's a rumor that you may have covered these in even more depth and detail. <laughs> That's in another true. Location. That's Yes. Um, I did actually kind of in conjunction with preparing for this episode, I prepared a whole course, a continuing education course for my website that is on this topic, but a much expanded, um, an expanded version of this. And so we go into more depth in the muscles. And then we also talk about other tissues and just this general taking a look at like, how does the nervous system actually coordinate movement? Does it even coordinate movement on the whole muscle level anyway? Like, how does that happen? And so, you know, just like reasons, uh, just taking a deeper look at how we choose to cue movement and whether we need to be so anatomically specific, you know? Um, and the like name, a lot of fun. yeah, it is. I'm really excited about the course. So it's a continuing ed course. Anyone can take it. If you're a yoga Alliance registered yoga teacher, it counts for continuing education, um, credit toward that. So that could be really mm -hmm. nice. And, uh, you can the, take it for on, free too, right? You can Travis, because all the memberships on my site start with a seven day free trial. So you can take this course for free. You can learn a lot more than what we dove into in this episode. And it's just really good, I think, information for any body geek, yoga geek, and especially yoga teachers who are, you know, leading people through movement. So it's on my website. Anyone can take it anytime. It's called When Should We Be Anatomically Specific in Yoga? It's a brand new course. I'm excited about it. What an awesome course. <laughs> Thank you. And so with all of that said, do you think that this, uh, we've kind of completed what we wanted to cover today? I think we nailed it. <laughs> me too. Thanks so much for being here and talking to me about all this. Thanks for all the awesome knowledge. And that wraps up our look at magic muscles. Remember that you can help support our work with this podcast to bring science-based education to our yoga and movement community by becoming a supporter of the show, starting at just $3 a month. Use the link in the show notes to become a supporter of ours if you find what we've been sharing to be of value. You can also support us by subscribing to our podcast and leaving us a rating or a review. You can also stay in the loop with all of our content and offerings by signing up for my email newsletter at jennyrawlings.com newsletter. Lastly, remember to use code PODCAST30 for 30% off your first month in Travis's and my Strength for Yoga remote group training program, or 30% off your first month in any of the other memberships on my website. You can learn more and sign up at jennyrawlings.com, and the link is in the show notes. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Yoga Meets Movement Science today. We look forward to seeing you in our next episode soon. Thank you.